Welcome back to War Economy and State. This is the Mises Institute's Foreign Policy and International Relations podcast. I'm your co-host, Ryan McMakin, executive editor with the Mises Institute, and joining me is Zachary Yost, one of our foreign policy writers, scholars, guys, I, guy I like to talk about uh, foreign policy with. And uh, we're going to talk, me and Zach, we're going to talk today about the National Defense Industrial Strategy. Uh, don't, don't turn it off. It's more interesting than you think. Uh, this came out in December um, 2023, and it's really, it's a lobbying paper. So if you've ever worked with government much, um, they crank, the, de the departments crank out these policy papers, essentially. It's, it's masquerades as research of a sort. And yeah, some research is involved, but it's uh, it's the department saying, okay, this is a thing we want to lobby for. So write up a paper that um, basically explains why this policy we want is wonderful and make it look like uh, it's basically a research paper. Um, now, of course, lots of other groups do that too. Um, the difference is that you're paying for this. You pay the Department of Defense to lobby for the Congress to spend more money on it. Um, and this is just one part of that effort. And we'll link to this in the uh, descriptions. And so you can go and read it for yourself. It's not terribly long. It's about 60 pages. And um, it's, uh, it's signed. <laughs> it starts out with a forward signed by the Deputy Secretary of Defense, I guess because the Secretary of Defense is in a coma or something. I don't even know what happened to that guy last time I checked. Um, it's been in and out of the hospital, so he may or may not even be working. Uh, and so they put forward all of these 60 pages worth of stuff that are really in the service of explaining why the United States needs industrial policy in the service of uh, more national defense sort of spending and planning. And uh, industrial strategy is a term that's been around for years. It's basically central planning. Uh, it's, <laughs> I mean, Franklin Roosevelt loved the idea of industrial strategy, wanted industrial strategy. This is where the central government has a plan for, this is how much of these things we're going to make and we're gonna subsidize certain industries and pay other industries and protect some industries so that we have this mix of products and services that come out and suit what the central government wants. And uh, that's that's what's in this this paper. It's uh, just modern industrial strategy. It's basically modern mercantilism, mercantilism, however you want to say it, where it's, hey, we need we need a whole trade and industrial policy designed to strengthen the central government and the state. Um, so let's look at a few of the details uh, then. So, Zach, we might as well just start like uh, where should where should we start with this uh, when we're reading? Uh, about uh, the the need for more active industrial policy in America. Right. Yes. Uh, one of the report's greatest flaws, though it's understandable why it is not present, is it does not really address the the crunch that the U.S. military industrial base is in at the moment <laughs> in regards to uh, waging a proxy war in Ukraine, giving weapons to Israel. You know, supposedly pivoting to Asia to contain China, uh, contain China and defend Taiwan and Japan, et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, we have a shortage of everything basically to the point where 
we have quote unquote borrowed a uh, service to air missile system from Japan <laughs> so that we can send another one to Ukraine. And also we have to send some to the Middle East because Iranian proxies are just, you know, shooting missiles off all over the place. So it's really an example of imperial overstretch. And now they're like, oh, gee, we need to start cranking out more stuff. And they don't address that, really. So that's annoying. But one of the things they do address that I think is a good place to start is that a major problem facing the military industrial base and manufacturing in general is that there's an enormous shortage of skilled workers, of welders and dye makers and all those other sort of uh, technical skilled jobs that go into manufacturing things. And I can attest to this. Uh, I mean, I live in Pittsburgh. There's still a lot of industry of various kinds. And uh, my relative just uh, received his certificate from community college for welding, had a job immediately upon graduating. Uh, I was working tons of overtime. Uh, and he has said like, yeah, lots of people there are <laughs> very old, basically. Um, and you can see similar reports about this from like the Shell manufacturing plant that the government runs, uh, also in Pennsylvania, out in Scranton, that basically everyone there is old. Uh, when the government was like, oh, gee, we just gave a third of our Stinger missiles, which are anti-aircraft uh, man pads, man portable air defense missiles, to the Ukrainians, and they used them up in about two months. Uh, there's not really been an active production line of those for like 15 years or something. They had to, Raytheon or whoever, had to bring people out of retirement to be like... <laughs> We need to get this line up and running again. But anyway, so they accurately recognize that this is an enormous problem. And they note that they'll need 117,000 um, like manufacturing employees, additional manufacturing employees, just to meet the Navy's um, uh, current tranche of uh, nuclear-powered submarines uh, in the coming like 10 years. So it's already literally hundreds of thousands of job shortages. And so their solution is basically we need to subsidize, uh, you know, programs to train industrial workers. And on the one hand, like you can see, oh, well, that would make sense on the surface. Uh, and they note, you know, manufacturing has become sort of a stigmatized profession. But then if you ask, well, wait a second, why did that happen? It might be that the, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars that the government has poured into subsidizing a four-year college degree might have something to do with that. So it sort of um, points to Mises's concept. Um, I'm blanking on exactly what he called it, but basically how when it comes to socialism and central planning, it's sort of a negative spiral of one intervention leads to negative consequences. Oh, we need another intervention to deal with those negative consequences. Oh, wait. Well, that was his talk, uh, middle of the road policy. Leads oh, to right. Yes, element. that's yes. it. Yeah. So I think that's almost a perfect example of this. Um, it's like, why should we be subsidizing career paths where there's enormous incredible demand, even outside of working for government-affiliated <laughs> contractors and producers, etc. Um, so that was, I think, a key sort of contradiction there. And another, it's, of course, it's just, it's truly, you know, re 
insane how the idea of DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion has infected seemingly all of society, but also all levels of government. They have a section there, which who knows if the authors even believe anything they say in the whole paper, but in this section in particular, it's almost sort of like just signaling to the powers that be like what giving them what they want to hear. But it's like, we need more women and minorities working in factories. It's like, uh, what? Women and minorities are free to go to community college for next to nothing and acquire, you know, the needed educational skills to enter this profession. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, well, it's uh, yeah, the, a lot of uh, portions of this paper. Right. You can tell what a profoundly political uh, document it is where it. It says all the correct things in that. Oh, well, this is the part where we mentioned something. So we had, you know, like in the old uh, despotisms of old, where anytime you mentioned the prince's name, you had to follow it up with may he live forever or something <laughs> like that. Right now, it's like anytime we mention DEI, we have to we have to just quickly nod our undying support for this notion. Um and so, yeah, there's all sorts of like little kind of pro-government dog whistle terms in there, if you will. And but, yeah, let's just look at some of the the vocabulary they use in here. Right. And I think this leads into just the general discussion is the phrase industrial ecosystem, <laughs> where it's this idea of, OK, we've got we need all these bombs and planes. And so we need to make sure and cultivate not just within the United States, but globally. Uh, we need to centrally plan what sort of industries are going to be available and how we're going to trade with them. Uh, and it's it's really just quite a sight to behold about, and we've talked about this before in other documents that have come out of the Department of Defense, there's, there's no lack of ambition ever in these documents. They always imagine that the whole world is to be ruled from Washington and that they can plan everything out and accomplish all these amazing global goals never seems to actually work out that way. They do succeed in spending a whole lot of money. That is the one thing they are always good at. But this attempt to create this industrial ecosystem that's somehow managed from the center, uh, obviously this is completely contrary to anything that you would, you would agree with if you are well-versed in Austrian economics and the idea of the impossibility of central planning because you can't know what the real prices of anything are. The documents like iPencil, which looks at the complexity, complexity, the international complexity of just manufacturing a single pencil. So you can just kind of imagine trying to plan then uh, some sort of global policy around building a bomb. And that's just, that's just what this document is here for. And it's all to the service of, and here's the phrase they use, uh, we, we need this industrial ecosystem, this global central plan to tend to the, quote, security of the U.S., our allies and our partners, quote, unquote. Well, that means everything. Everywhere. <laughs> I mean, so it's not just the security of the U.S., mind you. This, and it mentions this phrase more than once. Uh, it's, it's not just even our allies, because as we've seen in Ukraine, Ukraine is not an ally of the United States. It's not part of any treaty with the US. It's not key to any uh, special interests of the US. It's just a country that the US government has decided it wants to prop up. Well, so Ukraine would be our partner. 
and uh, not to be confused with an ally like, say, the United Kingdom. And so you can see how this is just carefully worded to ensure that there is no corner of the globe that uh, is free from our intervention. And that's why we need this, this uh, global industrial ecosystem. So it's just, in terms of its political purposes, it's just macro. It's, uh, it's military, you know, the, the term Bitcoin maximalist that we sometimes throw <laughs> around. This is, this is military maximalist, uh, just yet more of this out of the Pentagon. And the, this report is explicitly modeled on the annual national defense strategy, which we talked about uh, in, a, in an earlier episode, we talked about, I think, the 2022 one, um, but which you might recall in the intro, it, it literally says there is nothing beyond our capacity. <laughs> um, and a, a common, they, they, they mentioned several times this event called the Last Supper after um, basically when the Cold War was end, uh, ended, the, uh, whoever was the uh, Secretary of Defense at that time had a dinner apparently with like tons of defense contractors and is like, yeah, we're going to reduce the defense budget in light of, you know, we're now the unipolar power of the world with no rivals, yada, yada. And it, this keeps being cited in the document of like, oh, budget cuts to the military led to all this consolidation in production, which, yeah, that's another thing we have to talk about um, in terms of what the actual military industrial base looks like at the moment. But it's sort of absurd that they keep citing that because I just checked before the show and in real dollars, the defense budget is larger today than it was when the Cold War ended. Uh, now, people will very either because they are just uh, ignorant or because they're just trying to be deceitful will say, oh, uh, military spending as a portion of GDP is less than it was. We're practically spending less than we ever have on the military. Oh, no. We'd, but this implies that somehow our defensive needs are tied to the scale of GDP and not, you know, geopolitical, geographic, national interest concerns, which is just ludicrous. It's craziness. But uh, they they try and pull that trick as well. And I can confirm, I run the numbers a couple of times a year. I look, let's just double check. Let's look at the, uh, the Pentagon. And I, and you can look at the Pentagon, you can look at... Uh, um, say, uh, veteran spending, which, I mean, veteran spending is just deferred Pentagon spending. It's what they use to recruit people and keep people in. Um, but even if you just used Pentagon spending, yeah, if you adjust for inflation, even, even if you adjust for inflation, it's still higher now than it was then. So, um, yeah, let's, let's just stop pretending that defense spending is somehow... Uh, less that it's it's bare bones that we're trimming the fat. There is no such thing going on, and don't <laughs> let anybody tell you otherwise. Yes, and um, so I think this is an important point. In the document, it is correct to identify this as a problem, but I'm not uh, trusting that the government can fix it. And that is, it's not the procuring, uh, you know, artillery shells or something. Uh, procuring fighter jets. It's not like there's just a million firms out there 
producing, you know, even or even have the capacity to build an artillery shell or a fighter jet. But basically, if I remember correctly, there's roughly six firms that do <laughs> that the government basically buys the vast majority of military procurement from in terms of, you know, military equipment. I'm not talking about like food or gasoline or something. Uh, and so, of course, I mean, you know, Raytheon or Northrop Grumman or Boeing, it's it seems I mean, these these companies are quasi government entities at this point. I think one can safely say there is this, of course, leads to numerous difficulties in terms of efficiency and not being gouged. Uh, you know, it's like who is going to you know, bid lower when there's six firms, you know, it's like, it's not gonna, it's, we're, it's not exactly, you know, there's Walmart, Target, Kmart, Giant Eagle, a gajillion, you know, grocery stores varied in geography all across the country. Not the case for, uh, you know, F-35 production. And they note that part of the reason, there's a whole bunch of structural reasons why it's hard to expand they keep saying oh we want to get smaller firms involved in you know military production and there's difficult there's difficulties entailed in that in terms of um will you know we might not be able to secure capital investment to retool a factory to produce x if x is not going to continue to be produced after three years or something but also to become a government contractor is a not a simple process. It, it there's you know enormous amounts of rules and whatnot, and I assume you probably need to hire lawyers or at least some sort of uh, uh, you know uh, contractor to <laughs> you know decipher them. And I'm there's I know at least for lots of non-military contracting, there's all sorts of requirements for like minority representation and all sorts of crazy things. So it's not like, oh, I have some manufacturing capital here. I'm going to bid on this contract. Bidding on the contract is enormously complex and can cost a lot of money in and of itself. So of course, in typical government fashion, they say, oh, well, we should simplify that. But also, we need to help, we need to provide services to help potential contractors, you know, decipher all of our Byzantine regulations. So it literally amounts to we need to hire more bureaucrats to help people navigate the bureaucracy. That is what in the end it amounts to. And it's like, this is absurd, insanity, just nutty, but not surprising for the government, unfortunately. Well, this is the government loves that sort of thing. They're always talking about hiring people to help people get on welfare. Right. Like they always want to pay them. The government wants to pay itself to hire people to figure out new people and ways to give away more money to more people. It's uh, it's this nice scam they got going. And uh, it was just seemed, look, if you can't figure out how to apply for welfare, I mean, I know I don't know what to tell you. It's, it's not that hard. Uh, you go to the you go to the food stamps website. I've been there. In fact, I've run the numbers to see if I qualify. Uh, 
I, I almost do. I have so many kids that uh, <laughs> that I, my income doesn't actually need to be uh, especially low. Um, and so it, uh, <laughs> it, this is all designed for you to take advantage of these programs. And I know for a fact that when it comes to grant writing and all of these issues with government uh, procurement, there's already all sorts of information and helps. And all these nonprofits, they, put, they have classes for it. Um, the, the, I know the Treasury Department already has all sorts of workshops and classes. I mean, this idea that there, this doesn't already exist. It's it's they're not inventing this idea. They're just expanding it even more with even more spending. Um, and so it uh, it's really just quite remarkable. The number of new ways they have come up with to spend money in this uh, at an even higher magnitude than has been the case in the past. Um, now let's look at a couple of the. I, the well before we move on i wanted to, to come back a little bit to your talk about the last supper right no. because there, there's a historical component in this report right which lends itself to a very specific goal so they've got this history in there oh the cold war ended and there was all this spending and then we cut back spending uh and it made it sound like we've never recovered as you yes. said we've never recovered from this the end of the cold war in terms of spending obvious nonsense uh, easily disprovable um, but something they love to say. But you can see that if you just keep reading, the whole point of bringing all that up is really to launch a new Cold War. It's, oh, look, the old Cold War ended. We scaled back. The new threat now is China. So we have to ramp up spending now to pay attention to this new Cold War, this new enemy. And we have to do X, Y, Z in order to box in China. So there's a whole historical narrative here that they're using to manipulate you, where they act like spending went away, that America was naive, that America was in some sort of isolationist mode for the last 30 years, and now <laughs> it's time to really expand and get back to business. And that that's just sort of the, the story, the myth, the creation myth underlying the whole report. So uh, I, just, uh, I just think that should not go unnoticed. And that's, of course, exactly what we would expect to see. Uh, but it's amazing how they put it forward just so unironically, as if uh, it's this is obvious that they haven't been spending enough on military spending, and now they need to take more action. Um, let's get our act together, people. We've been uh, just just chilling for too long. Uh, right. And, and I the, wonder this, how the last 20 years of war fits into that. Right. This The story they spin, it conveniently absolves the Pentagon of their now in hindsight obviously flawed sort of pivot to um uh, can't remember what jargon they call it but basically like contemporary warfare as they viewed it which is like all warfare is going to be fighting the Taliban for the next you know for the foreseeable future even competition between great powers will be waged using, you know, proxy militias in remote deserts where American air power can just, you know, unopposedly bomb them to oblivion. And well, that, that, that had elements in both. Well, I know Donald Rumsfeld had this this thing going for like the modern next generation military. And then there was a lot of talk of the over the horizon sort of right, military yeah. action, right? Where we'll just send cruise missiles over the horizon from the <laughs> sea to kill all of these terrorists. So it was all this large, small scale 
you know, we're economizing now stuff, but now, but that's all seems to be out the window, right? Yes, yes, obviously. And because of Ukraine is the, you know, uh, I think I have a piece in the national interest uh, that talks some about that, but it, the, so, I mean, it's hard to say to what degree this is even the real price because artillery shells are manufactured at government-owned factories that are operated by government subcontractors. But I suppose to the degree there is an open market in artillery shells, like internationally among NATO people and all that who use 155 millimeter shells. As of a few months ago, a, a single artillery shell cost about $8,000. Uh, which is the same price like this article was like, this is the same price as like a high-end NVIDIA graphics card, which are now, you know, one of the most coveted items on the planet. And, you know, it's also, and it's like this artillery shell will be loaded in a cannon and fired off and blow up. Whereas at least, a, you know, it's not a capital good. It's a good that's consumed in war. Uh, so it's... Uh, you know, that's it's, uh, and and you need tens of thousands of these shells every month, and and the Ukraine war is relatively a low grade conflict. I mean, if you know, let's pull an economist move here and assume a can opener. If there was a conventional war between you know Russia and NATO, and we just say nukes aren't used. <laughs> uh, the scale would be incredible. I mean, it would be beyond anything we can really comprehend at the moment. Um, yeah, imagine Ukraine across an entire Eastern Front. Right. Of, uh, yes. From the Black Sea to the North Sea, or maybe up to the Baltic, I suppose. And in the Pacific as well, you know, sure, right, fighting <laughs> over, um, uh, what's that island called? Uh, 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 I can't remember the island, but it used to be Japan owned half the island and they called it one thing. And then the Soviet Union took the whole island back after World War II. But it would not be impossible to see a front there and all that. But anyway, yeah. So it's obviously not sustainable to pay $8,000 for a shell when you need millions of them. Um, and why, why has this happened? Oh, because of a Pentagon screw up about grand strategy and what the future holds. So... This also just nicely says, oh, it's the government didn't spend enough money. Not that are at our basic job of planning for the United States's defense needs, we screwed up, which we, we can, you know, as we've talked about before, we don't even need to be in NATO. We don't even need to fight Russia, yada, yada, yada. But just right, we should saying that, that were to happen. States, <laughs> if the U.S. was geared on just defending the Western Hemisphere, it wouldn't need an endless number of shells to fight right, some land exactly. war in Asia. It's just it wouldn't be something remotely necessary. Yeah, yes, exactly. And they also blame, they have a really crazy line where they're attacking China and then they blame China for stealing U.S. manufacturing, where again, they absolve the government of all of its regulatory and labor regulations that have kneecapped American manufacturing and all that. Um, and so they, they blame that. But then they also say that somehow the trade deficit with China contributed to the national debt. I don't they don't explain the logic there, but that's all like, I guess they're not the, economists. Just like a line, probably like a red meat line, like, oh yeah, the, the national debt, China's fault. 
Yes. Well, that's National one of Day. these like uh, things like DEI. You have to mention it and act yeah. like, oh, we're solving the national debt problem here. And right. even though it has nothing to do with the larger purpose. The, the $7 trillion spent on the war on terror did not contribute to the national <laughs> debt. It's China's fault. <laughs> this is the land of personal responsibility. Everything's China's fault. People taking fentanyl, it's Mexico's fault. Um, you know, That's also uh, China's fault. <laughs> yes, they, it's, it comes from Chinese labs. It's a plot of theirs. Well, speaking of uh, Latin America, right, there, there is some discussion of that issue in here, which made me think, of course, our discussion in the past of Monroe Doctrine sort of strategy, where, look, the United States, if, it's, if it needs to have some sort of international defense strategy beyond North America, fine, focus on the Americas, uh, who are all natural allies, uh, contrary and to treaty allies, I would point out. Yes, <laughs> everyone forgets that the real, real treaty allies, not <laughs> yes. just quote unquote partners. Yes, and uh, and of course, obviously Mexico, right? It has a long border with the United States, um, and people forget. I, I know that anti-immigration people always like to act like, "Oh, these people have no concept of Western civilization. It's they're they're alien to the Western tradition." Yes, they're Christian. Yes, they speak a European language. Yes, they've had written uh, Western-style constitutions for 200 years, but they have nothing to do with the, with the Western tradition. I, I have no idea how people come to this conclusion. The reality, of course, is that these are natural allies, um, ideologically, demographically, linguistically. Uh, and so you would see it would seem that you would want to cultivate an alliance there. And we've said that in our own work. And we've talked about nearshoring then this issue of, okay, fine, you don't want to have, you don't want to be heavily relying on trade with China, fine. But that's no reason to curtail trade with all of the countries of Latin America, where you should essentially have completely free trade, uh, at least in my opinion. And uh, they use a term in this report, called friend shoring <laughs> which is you know i think it captures what we were talking about in terms yeah. of ear shoring it was like oh let's let's just have more trade with these countries that are friendly toward us now of course this report manages to put a sinister spin on things where it's it's not really about unilateral free trade at all it's really just about uh, planned trade and controlling these countries through a back door and that sort of thing. But the 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 idea, of course, makes sense. Like there's all these countries that are natural allies. Why not have much more trade with them? Okay, that makes sense. Um, it would be nice, I think, if that was a real um, part of the agenda, if that was a, a real emphasis here. I, I fear that it is not. But at least that was a part of the report that I thought, okay, well, I mean, that's that's at least reasonable i'll just i'll just believe it when i see it um because you know that it's really just gonna be about treaties to control uh intellectual property and a lot of other issues it's really gonna be well latin america we want you to be our friends so long as we can somehow use you as a cudgel <laughs> against china um otherwise we don't really care whether you live or die um but i i do think that that would be a great idea just Okay, you want more industrial capacity, then focus on developing it in Latin America, not in a central planning sort of way, but just allowing the free flow of U.S. capital to these places so that we can use their local resources to further develop this industrial capacity. But um, it's not going to be that open, but the idea is fine. Yeah. 
yeah, I definitely agree there. It, uh, it does make sense to, you know, we already have a gajillion factories right across the border in Mexico. It, just, it seems quite, you know, natural that they could be incorporated into the, you know, iPencil-esque uh, military industrial production, structure of production and all that for sure. Well, and this guy, I guess, just kind of leads us to the last part of this then. Um, I mean, just read the summary. I mean, if you have what a sense of just how nothing escapes the attention of the Pentagon in terms of things they can control, things they can spend on. They, of course, use terms like, oh, we need to invest in small business. Um, <laughs> I've, I've noticed that now on government documents, anytime you see the term, this has been true for about 20 years now, anytime you see the term invest, what it really means is spend taxpayer dollars. Um, it's there's there's no actual investment going on. Uh, they want uh, to really just expand and control everything. Uh, that's the takeaway from this document. However, looking at the sorts of things that they raise and what they claim are very central concerns for the U.S. government, what would be the real free market solutions here? I think that don't require central plan. And we've looked a little bit about just expanding free trade globally. Um, tell us a little bit more about how, right, because you have mentioned not just here, but in some other places, and I think maybe we just haven't, uh, let's go into a little bit more detail there, where they've really regulated the United States to the point where it's not competitive anymore. I mean, right? Yeah. they complain, oh, we don't have enough steel production here. Okay, well, why is that? It's not, it's not because foreigners stole it, they were able to get it because it seems American policy was to push heavy manufacturing out of the United States. It, that would seem to really just uh, lead us directly to what the solution would be, right? Which is to deregulate these industries. Right, exactly. Now, a, a good example is steel, because people point out that the, chi the Chinese government uh, subsidizes their steel industry. It has immense overcapacity. I mean, it's they're throwing money down the drain, but they could, you know, can churn out lots of steel. But people have run the numbers, and I recall reading it's been a while, like five or six years now, but I think I know they have work on it. The National Bureau of Economic Research has crunched the numbers, arguing that uh, part of the decline of the U.S. steel industry uh, stems from sort of, you know, unions and the labor laws they've secured and sort of, you know, environmental regulations, yada, 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 that has made, made the American steel industry not able to be as competitive as uh, other competitors. And this, I mean, is true all over the place um, in, when it comes to, you know, manufacturing. If... If of course we don't want pollution, negative externality, all that, but so many environmental regulations go way beyond preventing these sort of negative externalities. I mean, so many environmentalists are sort of anti-human zealots who, <laughs> if they don't favor humanity going extinct, they want to, at least want us to return to being, you know, living in caves, deindustrialize. So that obviously huge issue. Uh, and then also, of course, labor. And I mean, you can look at the car industry, not an area I'm an expert in, but it's pretty obvious, you know, look at the big three in Detroit, you know, they're, in my opinion, going downhill. 
And uh, every time there's a labor uh, labor negotiation, it seems that the company and shareholders get screwed over more and more. Where ha where are all the dynamic car companies at now? They're in the South. They're in Tennessee or Tesla in Texas and all that. Uh, right to work states. Uh, with and uh, I mean. Just sort of a side rant here. I was in a union once, actually, the grocery store union. <laughs> I forget what it's uh, technically called, but it was a scam. You know, I just I had to pay and more money out of my small paycheck to fund the union to lobby for a higher minimum wage, basically. Um, and I would not have been in the union if Pennsylvania was a right to work state. We can look union membership declining. It has continued to decline for decades because people, when given the choice to not be in the union, <laughs> decide not to be in the union. So, uh, you know. So what you're saying is if uh, <laughs> that this document should have said um, remove uh, and uh, repeal all laws that favor union labor uh, and unionization. <laughs> Uh, because you, labor unions are a threat to national security. It would seem that oh, if this, yes. oh, if this document a, was truly objective, it would say that. Yes. Oh, yes. That's uh, that We need to write that up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and also, it becomes even more convoluted when it comes to government procurement, because there's all even more rules and regulations, you know, of, you know, uh, what HR has to do in terms of DEI and all those absurd things. And, uh, oh, so many... Uh, I don't know the degree to which this happens in military contracting, but I know for federal government contracting in general, oh, uh, minority-owned firms have to, you know, represent, receive so much of the funding and all that. And as David um, Bernstein points out in his excellent book, um, Classified, which I've reviewed for the Mises Wire, uh, this leads to all sorts of uh, ethnicity laundering <laughs> where people, you know, are, are try to claim that they are one ethnicity or another so that they can get favored uh, government contracting sort of uh, bidding position. Yeah, it's basically like a shell corporation where you put a non-white person in charge of that and then pretend that that is the actual that's who applies for the grant, even though the actual work is done by some other group separate. Yes, they the do do that. And people just pull an Elizabeth Warren and are like, I'm, you know, Hispanic or black or something, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I mean, there's cases have gone to court over it about like, what is this person's ethnicity? The government must determine this. It's, it's all craziness, horrible incentives created by the government. Just as a side note, I should note that uh, I don't know if we've carried articles on this on Mises.org, uh, but uh, Brazil has the same sorts of issues. And this is like a whole industry in Brazil right. yes. is basically manufacturing a non-white persona for yourself so you can get like into college and things like that. So, yeah, uh, it's uh, anytime you create these rules, you're, you're just asking for people to break them. And that's what a lot of this uh, federal contracting stuff, it's not even necessarily DEI related, right? Because there's all these extra hoops you have to jump through mm -hmm. for yeah. labor um, and pay and all of this. And it just creates layer upon layer of uh, new regulations. And Mises would have hated that. 
Uh, we talked a little bit before we came online, right, about how uh, in his books on uh, intervention and a couple other places, Mises, who was not a, at least later in his career, early on, he was much better on foreign policy. Later in his career, was not a Rothbardian on foreign <laughs> policy. Uh, but even he was like, look, you want these weapons manufacturers to do all this great stuff, and yet you regulate them out of existence. And you make it so that they offshore. And so if you actually claimed to be so concerned about military affairs, you wouldn't be asking all of these extra hoops of the defense industry and the weapons manufacturers. So even back in the 40s and 50s, Mises was well aware of this and uh, had pointed it out. But as with everything, weapons manufacturing, it's all anything that the federal government touches becomes politicized. So you can't just have a contract with someone to make a bunch of bombs. There has to be environmental stuff. There has to be labor. There has to be DEI, all of that. You can't just let the market function even when that would be key for your alleged goal of just unadulterated national defense. And yeah, that's just the way federal contracting works. Right. And um if you have your handy-dandy pocket edition of Human Action available, uh, starting on page 817 is Mises' section on the economics of war. He also talks about it in Nation, State, and Economy um, and uh, elsewhere, as we've said. Uh, basically, the basic point is we know people will say, oh, during peacetime, free markets are the way to go, but during a war, then we need central planning. It's like points out this is obviously contradictory. If free markets is the most efficient way to produce and procure goods and services, why, if you know this war, whatever war, is supposedly so important, so vital, perhaps existential, why would we then throw out this useful tool to then adopt a less efficient means of command economy? And a really short essay that I really, really like is The Economics of War by Murray Rothbard, where he sort of delves into this similarly. And like Mises, uh, which we've talked before about his sort of address in like 1918, where he's talking about war financing in Austria-Hungary, um, he talks about that also in Nation, State, and Economy, and in this economics of war section on human action, and Rothbard addresses this in the economics of war, basically, what is the best method of war financing? And he, of course, just says, you know, we don't want the government. If this war is truly important, the last thing we want to happen is the government to, you know, just be gumming up the works with all of its, uh, you know, horrible economic central planning. And I think that, you know, if uh, if there's any nerds out there who are looking for a project or something, a thesis or something, I think that trying to apply these Misesian and Rothbardian and generally just, you know, sound economic insights to the American military industrial base would be quite a uh, worthy use of your time. And uh, it would yield many insights that would be beneficial for making our case. So definitely someone do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode of War Economy and State. Uh, thank you, Zach, for joining me again. We'll be back next month. 
we'll come up with a new topic. Um, I'm sure there'll be plenty of horrible things said, said by the regime between now and then, but uh, maybe we'll come back and talk about uh, Ukraine next time, because I noticed that everywhere I look on the map in Ukraine, the Russians are advancing. And uh, it seems that we've moved way beyond the days of the Ukrainian uh, counterattack. Um, and I don't know what the next phase is going to be now. But uh, that may or may not be the topic for next time. Either way, we'll be back in a month, so we'll see you next time. <laughs>